This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Roland Gulliver. I'm the Associate Director of the festival, and I'm delighted to welcome you to what is the first event in our stripped programme, uh, celebrating comics and graphic novels. Um, over the next couple of weeks in the festival, there will be events looking at graphic novels and comics, culminating in the final weekend where we have four days of over 40 events with um, illustrators and artists and writers uh, from Edinburgh, Scotland, the UK, Fra France, uh, Canada, America. An amazing programme, so do please pick up a programme soon. It's, it's our Scottish Government Edinburgh Festival Expos Fund project for this year. There we go. That's good. Um, and it's, uh, it's a delight that we've been able to bring um, authors and writers to Edinburgh for this to be part of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, tonight is uh, a brilliant way to start the programme. Uh, we're all very, very excited uh, to welcome a writer who's come tonight. Uh, he's doing another event tomorrow with Joe Sacco, which will be amazing. And then Joe Sacco is doing an event the day after that. Um, so please put your hands together. Very warm welcome. First for your chair, Stuart Kelly, and then for Chris Ware. See you particularly well, but I think this must be the youngest book festival audience I've ever appeared in front of. Wow. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. As Roland said, my name's Stuart Kelly. I'm a man booker judge for this year, and I'm now the programmer for the Glasgow Literature Festival I write. I'm in awe of the fact that I can do this event with Chris Ware today. Uh, when the programme came out, I remember overhearing one person saying, oh, they don't have that many big names. And I thought, well, this just shows that you don't know anything about graphic fiction. We have, in fact, the laureate of the form, if such a thing could be. <laughs> Chris Ware was the first graphic novelist to be recognised by a major literary award when Jimmy Corrigan won the Guardian Book Award back in 2000. We're mostly going to be talking about his new work, Building Stories. 14 stories, which can be read in any order, and I calculated, since I am that much of a geek, that if it is 14 factorial, then we are looking at 87,178,291,200 different ways you can read this book. <laughs> I've read it twice, and it was very, very different each time. Please welcome Chris Ware. Thank you very much for coming and uh, wasting your Monday night on, on this. I, I, uh, I'm not a very exciting person, as you can probably already tell. So, uh, but whatever. I got a <laughs> highly reflected forehead, too. So, but anyway, thank you so much for being here. I'm very thank flattered, you, and uh, I, I never really thought this would ever happen to me. So, well, can, we, can we begin by talking about that? I mean, sure. it seems in the last 10 years, it has been more respectable, perhaps, to be seen to be working in the graphic form. Why do you think that's happened? Uh, I think mostly just because there's more uh, cartoonists trying to do serious, lasting work than ever before. Uh, it's fairly simple, I think. You know, it's, um, 
I don't, I don't think we're converting the cognoscenti or anything either. There's also the fact that the people who have grown up reading comics are getting older just like the rest of us, and maybe they've continued to read them. But I think especially this year, the, the number of, of genuinely thoughtful, serious graphic novels that are coming out is, is pretty amazing, from like Ritu Modan to Kim Deitch, and, and uh, it's, it's surprising. So it's, it's respectable and good, Robert Hernandez's in books. It, it does seem surprising as well in that a lot of the names who, which are regularly mentioned as pe being preeminent in the forum, when we're talking about Joe Sacco, who you're with yeah. tomorrow, or Marjani Satrapi, mm -hmm. that the graphic novel has actually tended to be the graphic memoir or the graphic non-fiction. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a bit about what it means to you as a novelist to use the cartoon, the graphic form. Well, I, you know, I don't even, it's very generous if you even consider me a novelist, you know. I, I still think of myself as a cartoonist because I think anything else kind of makes it sound as if I'm too fancy or something. But um, I, I, Art Spiegelman's put it very well and he said that, that uh, Marjan's book and other books that are nonfiction are about something. Um, which is true because they are about, what, immediately they're about the real world. There's still this idea that comics are a genre, which they're not, they're a language. But if you say, you've, uh, you can still say if you read comics, people think that there's an inherent content to them, uh, which there is not. But unfortunately, this is still uh, kind of propped up by the movies that have been coming out over the last 10 or 15 years or so. But that's okay. So it's, in a way, it's really good because I think it, it keeps comics honest as, as an aesthetic experience. I think when you come to a comic book and uh, you don't uh, like it, you just you figure the cartoonist is an idiot, which is good because if uh, I wouldn't want people to think that they didn't understand something that I was doing simply because they weren't smart enough. I wouldn't want them to feel that they understood it thoroughly and that I just have something wrong with me or it's just not a good book. So <laughs> it's, it's a much better relationship to have with a reader, I think. So, and I'm a little bit worried that as comics become more respectable and they're taught in universities that there'll be this sort of syrupy fog surrounding them or something and people will become less apt to be as judgmental of it. I mean, they're, they're, a, they're a working class art form, basically, and I, I hope they in some way keep that, that taint. So, when you mentioned there that you consider them a working class art form, does that inform the content that you do? I guess in a way, maybe. I guess one of the reasons I, 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 I continue to be interested in comics is that they are a, a, an art of the people, I guess. That sounds very kind of, uh, I don't know, strident or something. I don't mean it to. And I try to write stories about real people, which ironically, a lot of comics, especially in America, are not about real people unless, you know, Captain America's not real. Not last time I checked. But um, <laughs> so uh, they, then they, you know, they try to take those characters and make them seem real by giving them, quote, real problems or whatever. Um, but I, I try to write about, at least as I've experienced it, real life. I think real life is plenty strange enough. I don't need to add anything else to it to make it um, as, as confusing and, and baffling as it is. So. Can we go back? I want to talk, before we go on to building stories, just to talk about how you came into the form. Mm -hmm. um, so to begin with, what were the earliest cartoons, comics you remember reading? And which were the ones that made you think, I want to be in this form, I want to be in this world? Superhero comics, the <laughs> stuff that I'm talking about now. I, I, I didn't really read them as much as I copied them in this kind of weird way of like tracing uh, you know, muscular men and then drawing my face on top of the body. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, 
you know what that means. And I'm just like, when I grow up, I'm going to be like, you know, and of course that didn't happen. And uh, the, the comics I read and remember reading and still read are uh, Peanuts by Charles Schultz. It's, I think Charles Schultz actually is, a, he's the only cartoonist, possibly even author I can think of that you can read at six and at 60 and still get something genuinely profound and meaningful out of. And the fact that he, millions and millions of people read his work every single day. And, it, and for just such a brief few seconds uh, that he was able to communicate something human through these weird wiggly little drawings that went directly down into his heart and back out onto the page. You actually feel through his, his drawings in a way unlike anything else. But anyway, I, yeah, I started out reading superhero comics and then moved on from there, which I think a lot of myself and my peers went through. My, my friend Seth has put it very aptly. He said that he grew up reading superhero comics and by the time he was an adult he realized he'd been tricked into becoming a cartoonist. So, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. And at what point did you experience what we might call the more literary side of cartoon form? When did you start sort of first seeing things like Mouse or things like It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken? Sure. The, yeah, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that book too because that, that Good Life If You Don't Weaken is actually Seth's book and that seems, that seems to be weirdly overlooked, I don't know, in the history of of cartoon graphic novels or serious graphic fiction. That book came out, I think, in 1996 or something. Yeah, and that predates yeah. pretty much everything. It's a beautiful book. Um, I, and there's sort of a proto-seriousness in the underground comics of the 1960s with Robert Crumb and Art Spiegelman and Kim Deitch. But I, I think it's, it's certainly it kind of coalesced around Art's Mouse, which is the best graphic novel published and I think may never even be bettered. It's such an, an intensely dense, serious, complicated, accomplished work. I, I mean, I always knew that, but his book that came out a couple of years ago or last year, MetaMouse, that went into everything that mm. he, he, how he put it together, it just made me feel so bad and lazy. Like, and I thought like, okay, I'm really trying hard. And then I saw this, and I thought, oh my God, there's just, you know, our generation really needs to step up, you know, we're not working hard enough, so. If we sort of split up the graphic novel into its component parts, I mean, if, if it was Peanuts and people like Seth that sort of first put you down this uh, route, what were the actual novels that did? What were the novels that you were reading that you were thinking, that conveys the kind of view of the world that I'd like to be able to do for myself? Well, as a kid, I read a lot of science fiction and superhero stuff, so you can guess what kind of kid I was like. But I, I, I went in sixth grade, I think it was. I, I had avoided reading um, Out of Africa, and I did some crappy project for my English teacher, which made it extraordinarily clear I hadn't read the book. I think I drew up like the continent of Africa with arrows pointing out of it or something like that. <laughs> and um, she handed me a copy of, of Mice and Men and said, read this tonight or you will fail. So I went home and like, you know, nervously read through the book. And by the time I was done reading it, I had been moved to tears and I had never been moved by a book that way. And it was that I can, I, I mean, maybe I'm rewriting my own history, but I'm almost sure that was the moment when I realized like a story could touch you so deeply and affect you so emotionally and I, I never really it, it occurred to me that that could happen so beginning with that and then since then I'm still trying to acquaint myself with the writers of the 19th century from Tolstoy to Chekhov and and Pushkin and, and Proust as well as uh, one of my favorite modern writers is is John Updike, David Foster Wallace, Zadie Smith, all the usual favorites. So. But how interesting that it was Steinbeck first because it links straight back to what you were saying about a working class form. This was a book yeah. which made a, a huge impact in terms of the dignity of the representation of the working classes. Also deals with issues about um, not just personal depression, but political depression. Yeah. And these are themes that you've very much been 
involved in giving your own twist on? I think, yeah, I think mostly it was just that the book was so powerfully human. I don't, you know, I mean, like really what it comes down to, what's the point of doing all these books anyway? What is all this for? It's to, it's to somehow say, you know, is what I'm feeling the same as you're feeling? And just the simple fact, if you can communicate that honestly and wordlessly, that in and of itself is a powerful emotional act because fundamentally you're trying to connect and to create a sense of empathy with other people. I think that's only when you can progress, you know, either emotionally or politically or however you want to put that. So, so just to turn to the art side, I mean, you mentioned those particular comics, but what other forms of art fed into your particular, very distinctive way of drawing? I, I studied painting and sculpture, actually. I never uh, formally studied literature other than just by taking English classes when I was in school and in college. Uh, I, 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 I wouldn't necessarily say I feel like a great uh, simpatico with 20th century art. There are certain artists I really love, like Philip Guston, I think, is one of the greatest artists yeah. of the 20th century. He's the first painter to paint a portrait from the inside out of what it actually feels like to be in a... His paintings are just astonishing. Yes, that's true. But um, he's, he's sort of a synesthetic painter in a way. Like, um, you could feel his paintings in your mouth almost, or inside your head. Um, Joseph Cornell I love a great deal. Um, the book, Building Stories itself, was actually inspired by, at least the form of it, Marcel Duchamp's uh, Museum in a Box. Um, uh, Mary Cassatt I love a great deal. Um, it's strange when you're mentioning those particular painters that all of them don't have the kind of precision that your work has. What do yeah. you put that down to? Is that just... Well, it's, being a cartoonist <coughs> and being a painter are two completely different things. A painting is about looking and cartooning is about reading. I'm trying to create, uh, through my drawings, a, uh, an image that is so clear that you almost don't see it. I don't want it to be that interesting. If you linger on it too long, then I think I've failed as an artist. It's, it's, it's intended to be read in the same way that you read words on the page. Um, I think it might be interesting to read a, uh, a, a handwritten manuscript for a great novel, but it would become really problematic after a while trying to figure out like, oh wait, he meant to put in this sentence here or something. So you typeset it so that you can read it and feel everything straight through. When you read a book with only just words, you basically go blind. You don't even see what's going on. And comics are this weird uh, medium that kind of keep you half blind in a way. It's a strange sort of experience where you have the, the sensation of something happening before you that at the same time is keying into your own memories and hopefully your own emotions at the same time. It's a very weird, delicate balancing act. So if I drew it too beautifully, for lack of a better word, it would, it would distract from that. It would be too much about me then. So. I can absolutely empathize with you saying that about uh, trying to read a great novel in the author's master hand. I did that once and it was almost impossible. You, you, know, re you read one? I, yeah, I read uh, one of Walter Scott's novels in manuscript and it, wow. it nearly gave me a seizure. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was bad enough anyway, but you know. <laughs> it was Count Robert of Paris, it's quite a late one. So. <laughs> but you know, that interests me what you're saying about the, um, the idea of almost not noticing what's going on. Because you've talked a lot about the sort of inherent paradox of reading a comic, mm -hmm. that it is both the visual reading and the um, linguistic reading. Can you talk a, just a little bit more about why you think that paradox is something you, you thrive on? I, you know, I don't know. I just, I, and I've said this a million times, but when I was, I guess when I was about 20 or so, I realized I was really relying way too much on words in trying to tell 
stories that were terrible to begin with at age 20. So I, I cut out the use of all words in my comics and just started using pictures to see how much I could communicate with the pictures. Which, And when you only use pictures, you tend to work in smaller chunks of time and to try to get it a sense of how people move, how it feels to experience being around another person. And I noticed as I reread those strips that they seemed to still produce sounds in my mind. And I realized there was something going on there, that we are internalizing this kind of re regular beat or or clicking in our minds of, of experience. It almost comes down to kind of like a music in a way. So then going from that, I built back up by adding words into it. Um, and I keep that going constantly as I work now, is that sense of of the rhythm of experience, for lack of a better word. I mean, I think that's what any, any novelist does. It's there in Tolstoy. It's very obvious in Tolstoy. His sense of how uh, you experience people's uh, facial expressions when you're talking and how he inserts those into the dialogue is exactly how you experience it. And it sets up a very believable uh, sense of time passage. Hemingway is the same way. The way he orders things is very much how you experience. I'm quite curious about the idea of of reading and that we know now that when we read a novel, our eyes don't move like a typewriter, you know, towards the end and back again. It swirls all over the place. Is that true? Yeah. Really? Um, Was there know, like a study or something? Yeah, there's a study in... <laughs> really? A book called Proust and the Squid by Marilyn, I can't remember the second name, but you know, our eyes move around the whole time. How do they track that? Um, do they put like a laser or something? <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't Jim, mean, I'm, I'm not a scientist. This question, I'm sorry. I just you know, I didn't know that. I'm a, I'm a chair, goddammit, not a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, what, what strikes me about the graphic form is the way in which you interrupt how the eye moves around the page. Mm -hmm. Whether it's, you know, in some cases following a strip, in other areas it will form a sort of S shape across the page or a figure of eight. Tell me a bit about the process of thinking about how the reader's eyes are going to be moving on this. I th the most basic form of, of laying out a comic page is the traditional grid, which anybody yep. thinks of. You can draw a grid, and if you just put a circle in, or, or two and a couple of those things and ask somebody what it is, it's like, oh, it's a comic strip. You know, it's just the way we think of it. And it, it, it's based on the idea of text. But I don't think that that's necessary. What I'm trying to get at is a sense of, uh, like when I put an image in the center of a page specifically, I'm trying to create a sense of something that has no edge or no border in the same way that our memories have no edges and no borders. I want there to be a sort of an orbital centrality to it. I don't want it to be like a flattened out kind of a pizza dough problem or something like that. I want it to be a whole sphere, if that makes sense. And it, as far as ordering the eye goes, I it's it happens as I work on it. I can't plan these things. and. Oddly enough, as I work, things start to line up in ways that I, that I just cannot predict. It just happens naturally. And for a while, I thought it was because maybe it was just luck or something. But I honestly believe it's because all of our minds, we're creatures of language. We, it's, our brains are structured in such a way that we have to communicate rapidly and, and find information rapidly. So it comes out that way on the page. Things are interconnected in our brains in ways that we don't even necessarily know which is one of the reasons art can be moving, because there's connections in there we're not sensitive to necessarily. So I think recently, just since we're going to talk about research that we don't quite understand, apparently um, <laughs> they, like, they found out that, that the neurons in the brain are not just, not just like a mass of like glowing spaghetti. It's actually uh, an XYZ axis. So it's actually organized in a 90 degree way, whatever that means. It's kind of interesting, though. So, but. 
Again, yeah. I don't know how they figured that out, so, but <laughs> chop somebody's like skull off or something. And, oh, look at there. Something. In, t in terms of building stories, um, as I said, it's 14 separate books. And you can read them in any order. Mm -hmm. But you must have written them in a specific order. And there must have been one sort of genesis point. Can you tell me what, what that was? Where was the, the no, kernel of the no, story? No. Uh, well, the very first strip is just a strip about the, the girl who lives on the top floor of the building um, going on a, on, a, on a date that she set up through a newspaper. And I, I thought that would just be a one-shot strip. And then I, I did it for this obscure Swiss magazine which has long gone out of business. I seem to have a history of that with magazines. Um, <laughs> but uh, a deadline came up for the next strip for that magazine faster than I thought it would, which is always the case with deadlines. And I thought, okay, well, I wonder who's living on the second floor of that building, you know? And then I did the third floor. And then before I knew it, I realized, like, well, maybe this would be kind of an interesting short story. And then it just kind of, it grew from there. So, but the individual books themselves, I didn't do in any order, they grew independently as well. Organically sort of, out of the program. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I, without putting too much of a pretentious point on it, I'm, I, uh, I'm very uh, admiring of the, the architect Louis Sullivan and his idea that a, an idea has to, has to grow. Um, I, it's, there's really no other way of putting it. If you construct something, that's fine, but it's quite different than allowing something to happen naturally. And I think the canny reader can, can tell when something is a little more fabricated than not. So. Overdetermined. Yeah. At the same time, I want my stuff to look synthetic because it's fictional. I want it to have a sense of artifice to it. So, but, yeah. Without giving away too much of the plot, um, our central unnamed protagonist, the, the female character, mm -hmm. doesn't exactly have her troubles to seek. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the course of the, the whole book, she loses part of her lower leg. Uh, her boyfriend ditches her, she has an abortion, her dad dies, her best friend commits suicide, uh, the cat goes away, and she drowns a baby mouse. So yep. there's, there's a, a huge amount in there. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry. Um. And yet it's not a depressing book. Oh. It's about a kind of, to my mind, about a kind of struggle against depression. When you were mm -hmm. sort of creating this character, were you aware of thinking, I'm putting this person through a lot of stuff, how are they going to... Can they be resilient enough to, to cope with this? You know, I never think of I'm putting a character through something. I don't know why, but I, yeah, I don't feel like I'm the, you know, malevolent god or the something like that. Oh, see you do with this now. I don't feel that way ever. I, it's, it's, uh, I can't even necessarily put it into words. It's as if when I'm drawing the person, the whole aim is to try to create somebody on paper who I care about, and hopefully the reader will care about as well. And if possible, a character who is possibly uh, as smarter even than myself or more emotionally resonant or something. So um, it, in it, as I write, it sort of just happens, I think. So I don't really, yeah, I'm not trying to put her, put her through the you know, ropes or something or through the obstacle course necessarily. But. And yet, you know, I mean, the important thing to me was that this person was so resilient, was so funny that one did, you know, not just sympathize with her, but actually genuinely like her as a person. And when I read it in two different ways, the first time I read it, the last part I read was the point where she talks about the fishing accident, fishing boat accident, where she yeah. loses the part of her leg. And it seemed as if everything in the life, that this would finally found the original trauma. Mm -hmm. When I read it another way, that came halfway through, and it didn't seem to be as important that time. It seemed no, there was good. other things 
that were concerning and difficult and triumphant about it. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if, when you were sort of um, putting the books together, did you have a sense of what is it that is driving this person? Or did you want there to be lots of different possible drivers? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what drives me. So it's just a matter of uh, trying to put as much in there as possible that feels real and honestly human. And, you know, without, you know that's, that's the trick, I guess. So, and hopefully it will coalesce into a sense of a person. I, don't, it's, I mean, I think it's the way we experience, not only the way we have our, we have our own memories within us, but also how we get to know other people. You don't immediately meet somebody and know their entire life story. You might find out some weird detail about, you know, some anecdote happening to them at, you know, this is that point, and then as you get to know them, you'll find out something about their childhood or about what they wanted to do with their lives or what didn't happen with their lives. And from that, you start to assemble a sense of them, um, which may actually be completely not true because you have your own ideas that you're putting mm. onto them or you think, oh, I bet they really want to do that, you know, and that's, that might not be the case at all. And I, we do the same thing with ourselves as well. And, and ultimately, good lord, this is it. What the hell? <laughs> Was that normal? Does or everyone something? know how to do duck and cover? <laughs> wow. It's every night. Is it every night, really? Yeah. Oh, just like test us or something, or what? <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, I didn't expect that. Uh, I don't even know what I was talking about. Uh, I, I, trying to make a, trying to make a, a, I wanted to make a book that didn't have any beginning or end because that's the way I, our memories are. I mean, we have a sense that, of course, we were born and we know what the end is going to be, but we can enter our memories at any point and come out of them at any point and put them back together and take them apart at any point. And this just seemed to me to hopefully be some kind of slight analog to that, which wasn't too pretentious, hopefully. So, well, it, but it, it, it succeeds marvelously. I mean. One other thing about it is the, the way in which the different books mimic different forms mm -hmm. of comics over time. And that there's a kind of interplay between the kind of book that we're reading and the kind of expectations it engenders. Can you just talk a little bit about how you selected those particular kinds of comic books, like the Golden Cockerel mm -hmm. comic book, for example? Yeah, you know, a lot of it is just purely on instinct. I, I go by feel more than I go by my brain in a lot of cases. I, uh, in the case of the, like, there's two magazine side. I mean, a lot of these formats that are in this are not, they're not going to exist pretty soon. They're, 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 they're sensations of holding various sized pieces of paper to which we're pretty sensitive to within, like, maybe a tolerance of a quarter of an inch or so. Um, and they have a particular resonance, if not a nostalgia, for all of us at this certain point in history that I think will not exist fairly soon. So I wanted to at least have a little bit of sense of that. And I didn't want it to be obvious either necessarily or have it connect in a, in a way that seemed narratively pointed necessarily because mm -hmm. uh, it's it would be too silly then I think but I, at least in the case of there's two that are magazine size that are the same size and those are the the, the stories about the two, the couple living on the second floor and the woman on the first floor um, and other and it, it mostly it's just to, to create a sense of something that hopefully looks interesting and varied in a way that we think of our own memories as being sort of textured and interesting. There might be certain memories where it gives you that feeling like oh I don't want to think about that, and other ones where it's like oh, I remember that wonderful time with whatever. And there's certain formats and feelings that that accrue from holding a certain size of something or a, um, um, 
book or whatever that I, I think. I feel rather guilty having this sort of a glorified electronic coaster here now, but... Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, whatever. I mean, is, is there a kind of elegiac quality to it then? But Maybe a little, I guess. I don't want to put too fine a point on it. I like print. I mean, I come from a family of newspaper people. My, my grandfather was a newspaper editor. My mom was a, was a reporter, and I used to go to the... Um, to the newspaper with her, and I liked seeing all the guys working there and hearing the presses running. It was just really like a warm experience, and um, so I feel a certain affection for it. There's a f uh, affinity to it too, as well. I think that there's not to this. This can just kind of go on for it. Plus, it just feels so not right to pay for some electronic information. I don't know why. It just seems mean in a way. Like it's so it's, it's like somebody breathing into your mouth. Like thank you. you know, like, <laughs> It just doesn't, it's not satisfying in some weird way. Plus there's something about trying to tell stories about something that's almost impossible to articulate, because otherwise why would you tell the story that needs this kind of contradictory, concrete quality to it. I, you know, it's, poetry kind of needs to be written down in a way. It needs to have a physical uh, component to it. Um, so, and that sounds kind of art schooly. I don't mean it to, but. Can we talk a bit about some of the, uh Odder parts of it. I mean, we've got our central character who's at one point in the story living on the top floor mm -hmm. of the building. Later on, she'll be in the suburbs as well. And the rowing couple on the second floor and the old lady on the basement. Mm -hmm. But across that, you've also got things like the uh, there's people from the future looking in our, our thoughts, and there's the wonderful bee. Yeah. <laughs> where, where did he come from? I, it's, that was just stuff, uh, stories I started um, writing to. Uh, um, amuse myself that are reflective of what I would go through every single morning taking my daughter to school where she would uh, say, Daddy, tell me a George and Martha story, which are characters based on this great uh, children's book author named James Marshall. And I've written more George and Martha stories than he ever wrote by about <laughs> five million or so. Because every day I would have to come up with a new story. So the, the B stuff in the book is supposed to represent the stories that the, um, the mother is telling to her daughter at night um, and sort of improvising and also the sort of roadblocks that you kind of come up against when you're telling a story to somebody of a certain age and the certain things you don't talk about and the things you make, like what, how much do I tell this child about life and how much do I keep yeah. away and those particular stories um, kind of do both. So. And certainly there's a kind of a parallelism, particularly mm -hmm. when he's stuck inside the, the can and yeah. You know, the way that that relates to the depression, so that it is sort of very subtly interlinked yes. with the rest of it. Right. But it's well, a chance to do much more kind of a broad brush comedy as well. Yeah, I almost consider it's, not including it, but it, it's, it's also part of it. And there's a part of the strip too where he, the beef, uh, cross-fertilizes some flowers that are planted and actually causes his own death. It's about causation and things that we don't quite understand, which I think is sort of, you know, it's an interesting... And you know the the writing is simply beautiful. I mean, the the god's eyes oh, as the flower nice. is astonishing, and the way that that then relates to the sun as well. There's yeah. something very kind of almost surrealist about it. I mean, really, you've, yeah. you've mentioned sort of Cornell as a, an influence. Was there a kind of influence from well Duchamp surrealism that? Eh, I don't know. Maybe not so much. But I, uh, in that case, I was just trying to think. Well, you know, what would it be like to be a bee? I guess or something. And have a. You know, <laughs> 
I just have a sense of, like, I mean, we have a pretty, you know, we think we know what it's like to be a human being, but I don't know if we necessarily do. You know, we, we like to think of ourselves as these independent entities that judge and, you know, recall and perf perform great acts of will, but I think we're just like another weird organelle of a large planetary consciousness or something that's very, you know, we, we think we make things happen, but do we really, you know? And so I, trying to put that into the mind of an insect or something is, you know, what do insects really experience? So I don't, that just seemed like a funny way of thinking about it. So, I mean, that's what kids do too. It's what kids like to think about uh, how animals feel. And the, the first thing they do is they think, oh, the bee is going home to his, you know, his family. It's like, well, yeah, that's, it's like a clotted hive with thousands of buzzing like drunk drones or something <laughs> like trying to rape a queen. Yeah, that sounds like a great family or whatever. But, so it's, also, it's again about empathy, because I think as a kid, especially one of the appeals of animal stories is trying to understand how that's the first step towards trying to understand how other organisms feel, you know, whether they're animals or people, which we're, we're mm. all organisms. So trying to understand and feel through other people. So. Some of the reviews, well, all of the reviews have been ecstatic, some more so than others, and indeed it's been compared to James Joyce's Ulysses for the comic form. Jeez. Um, the book that yeah. kept on coming back to me, though, was um, Georges Perec's uh -huh. Life of User's Manual, which is right. another book about a building yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, with lots of different kinds of stories mm -hmm. inside it. And even with Bradford the Bee and the, the whole point where all the words alliterate on bee round about him mm -hmm. uh, was very like that kind of Ulipo word game. It's, is that something you're acquainted with? Is it an influence that sort of? I have never read it. I have a copy of it. Francoise Mouly, Art Spiegelman's wife, gave me her college copy of it when she uh, found out I was working on this book. And I set it aside because I knew if I read it, it would, you know, I didn't want to be influenced by it. And I still haven't read it, but I've been meaning to. That's the greatest title for a book ever. So it's, I mean. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's an astonishing book. And I, I love the fact that you haven't read it because when you do read it now, you'll see just how. Really close on the parallels are, but you know it's yeah. it's. Well, there's no. I mean, I've I've come to the conclusion or to the epiphany that any epiphany I've ever had in my life is just purely out of naivete. You know, like I'll think, oh, I figured something out, and then I realize, no, it's just because you didn't know about this guy who did it before and was a lot smarter than you. So. We're going to open up to the audience soon because I know that there's a, a lot of people here who are desperate to ask you questions, but. The idea of the building having a consciousness, mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've talked about the bee and the fact that that's about empathy. That empathy extending to the architectural, can we talk a little bit about that and the idea of where did the idea come from for the building narrating itself? I don't know how much I should give away here, but the, well, the, the whole book itself is, is filtered through the consciousness of the main character. And uh, so, uh, the stories about the people living on the second and third floor are her own stories that she's yeah. either thinking about or written about in the same way that when you have neighbors and you live in a building, you think like, you know, you might hear them arguing, you think like, God, are they always yelling at each other like that? Are they actually happy? Are they miserable? Whatever. And she wants to be a writer. So those stories are kind of maybe not as good as they could be. I wanted them to be almost in a way slightly cliched. And the stories with the building as a narrator are, I think I, at one point she's in a writing class and um, she's talking about that or something or she's being mm. criticized for that. So it's supposed to kind of represent a kind of overwrought uh, early attempt at, at writing, um, which I myself am quite profoundly guilty of, um, that sometimes kind of almost can, you know, you can, it'll work sometimes, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's awful. 
So uh, at the same time, I like thinking about a building as a consciousness, even though it doesn't have a consciousness. But when people inhabit it, it starts to take on sort of a strange presence in a way you start to think about the people who have lived there before. So that's sort of just supposed to be reflective of her, her, her attempts at being creative. And the book itself is supposed to represent her sort of left behind creativity, yep. which I think we all have within us. It's, it's very, very plangent, that part of it. And certainly the scene in the writing class is exquisitely embarrassing. Really? You know, wow. I, I felt, you know, a real wince of recognition. Did of you take poisons. a creative writing class ever? No, but my wife teaches one. Oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I could never do that. That'd be, I'd rather play basketball. It'd be <laughs> horrible. But just to have to read something you wrote to a table of people looking at you, just awful. So, almost... Marking. Before we open up for the audience questions, this has been such a huge, ambitious project. Mm -hmm. Ten years in the making. Yeah. Um, oh, what's 11. next? Eleven. <laughs> so I just did that out of embarrassment, I guess. I, I've been working on another stupid long book for almost the same amount of time. I just happened to finish this one, so it's. Can I, you give us any hints about the other one? And it's, the... it's been published in, in chapters all, already. Um, I was looking up to see if any of it was up there. It's, it's a book about seven different people centering around a particular school in Omaha, Nebraska, which is the town where I grew up, and it kind of grows from there. It's sort of, it's not dissimilar, but it's not, you know, broken into physical pieces necessarily, so. But yeah, it's, I'll probably, it's, you know, life's work kind of, I guess. I don't know, I'll be working on it until my daughter's in college, probably. It's insane, you know, I don't, it takes so long to, I don't know how many, Probably everybody here is a cartoonist, right? <laughs> I was can, can we have a like, show of hands? How many people here actually? How many cartoonists are in here? Oh, come on. There's more than that. All right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Don't be embarrassed. Um, yeah, it's, it's as you know, anybody who's tried to do it, it's difficult. It takes a long time, and it can, you can you know, miss vast chunks of your life. I just spent the last uh, three weeks answering mail that went back to 2007. <laughs> so I, which is, and I was answering mail from cartoonists like, I'm just starting out, and I was wondering if you could give me some advice, so I just, I'd look them up on the internet and see that like, they're already lecturing about their work. <laughs> like, Way to go. <laughs> so, yeah. There's something wrong with cartoonists, and so at least my generation, I think, is starting with Charles Schultz. He, he, would, he went through his, uh, his, uh, his high school and grade school yearbooks and would go through and write deceased or cancer over the... <laughs> the kids that he still had unresolved issues with, I think. You know? So it's, there's something about sitting at a table and staring at this blank page and your memories forming back in this kind of weird little loop on the page. It's, you know, it's similar to what novelists do, but maybe it's a little more pathological in the cartoonist or something. But. On, on that pathological point, if we had the house lights up slightly oh more so we can see. There's a couple of roving mics, and if you could wait till the mic gets to you, um, who'd like to kick off with the first question to, to Chris? Then you can throw it at me. Oh, we've got somebody. Okay, if you come to you first, sir, and then at the end of the row. Or the other way around if you want. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, you talked a little bit about the production size and scale and the paper using. Could uh -huh. you talk a little bit about your experience with McSweeney's and the digital and what you think you might do with that in the future? Or do you think it has a future for you doing work digitally? Uh, I, did a, I, I did do a, 
Uh, are you talking about the strip that they did? Is it, yeah, I, I did a strip for, actually it was originally for Wired Magazine and it appeared in, in Building Stories and it was made into a, I designed it around the idea of being able to physically touch images, which I think is one of the real appeals of certainly this technology is that we can take something that is, uh, a, a, for better or for worse, a, a memory and actually kind of start to manipulate it with our fingers. That's one of the appeals to, to that technology and I wanted to write a strip that kind of keyed into that and the idea of in any relationship how the sort of electric touch of affection starts to become aggressive as you become more familiar with a person. Um, and But I did it for Wired Magazine and it became so complicated they just said we can't do this because it would make the issue so big nobody could download. I think they just didn't want to run it because it was too, it had a lot of bad words in it or something. But, <laughs> but then McSweeney's wanted to try it and they did a, a great job making it exactly how I wanted it to be but then when it was done I just thought again it's just you know it's just this downloadable thing and I just didn't feel very it just seems somehow not I don't know it's just unsatisfying in a weird way it would be like getting your dinner by pushing print or something I don't know I can't put it I can't come up with a better way of putting it but I, I'm sure that as I get older I'll just that's the way things will appear I suppose but it's I don't know it's I got a house full of books. I don't have any more room for them, but I like books. So I, it's, I'm of two minds of things. I think it's, you know, I'm sure I just sound like an old man up here just complaining, you know. But I'm not answering your question. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know. I should mention McSweeney's too. I mean, I'm sure everybody here is familiar with the, that publishing concern started by Dave Eggers. Uh, and uh, all of the wonderful experiments that they do with print and continue to do. Um, they've done boxes of books, they've done things that fold out, fold in, and, and they're just such a wonderful company. That they just, they, just by the very, what they do, just their whole charter is just to keep that flame of literature alive, even the writing centers that are all over America is to try to instill in, in children the idea that reading and stories and stuff is supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to, you're not supposed to figure out what the point is or what the theme of Moby Dick is or something, you know? It's to read and enjoy yourself. So make life better and more interesting, so. When I interviewed Dave Eggers, the founder mm -hmm. of McSweeney's, he did mention, I don't think it's actually ever come about yet, that he was planning to do an issue entirely etched on glass. Really? I didn't yeah. even know that. That's interesting. Yeah, that seems like a little ambitious. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I, I think he's more optimistic about the postal services than I might be for <laughs> saying that one. I know that when Eli uh, Horowitz, he was the editor of McSweeney's for a while, he and I were talking on the phone, he, he was trying to figure out a way that would make an issue that would be born of fire. <laughs> that when you got it in the mail and you ripped it open, it would like explode into flame. And I'm like, I don't, you know, I don't think the subscribers are going to, you know, that's what you go to prison for, I think. So. Anyway. So to this person here? Just wait for the mic. Um, yeah, I was, I was just kind of wanting to hear maybe some of the ideas and what kind of came into the creation of particularly Acme Novelty Library number 19, particularly that first half, the, uh, the, 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 the science fiction novel, The Sinai Dogs of Mars, which mm -hmm. quite frankly, that is the greatest title for a science fiction book I, I think I've ever run across. But I was just kind of curious because it does work so well with the, reading that and then reading the process of him going through what caused him to write it. So mm -hmm. I was just kind of curious as where you kind of got some of the ideas for that. You know, I don't know. Reading science fiction as a kid, uh, and I, I love the idea of a, of a failed science fiction writer, I think. I, um, 
Nobody really writes about, at least I don't know many people that write about science fiction writers, especially that sort of second generation of guys. Um, I did, you know, I read a lot of this stuff as a kid and it, it amused me and I had this idea for a story and I wrote it. So, and, I, and part of the idea behind that too is that as you're reading that story, you're actually reading it through the mind of the characters. So there's, I put in all these references to like Stanley Kubrick and stuff that would have been in his mind that would have changed the way he read his own work, which is kind of obscure and pretentious, but it's part of the, the idea there too. Plus, I mean, I think everything gets, is born of heartbreak for better or for worse. And, I think everybody has the, uh, like a good story within them. If they like, there's a lot of beginner's luck, you know, and and that's uh, um, kind of about that as well too. So again, I am not answering your question at all, for which I profoundly <laughs> apologize. But um, yeah, I'm not. I don't think I'm in any danger of writing a lot of science fiction stories, though. I'm, I'm afraid it was fun to do. I guess so. I started to feel really guilty as I was working on it, though. So lots of uh, lots of astronaut bubble heads and stuff. But, so. Is it is it a form which I mean science fiction that that is perhaps less easily tractionable for your particular style? That, you know, when you think of the when you think of how baroque a lot of those images are and how classical yours are, that it might be. Maybe yeah, I guess I don't know. I mean, it's like you know, we're all living in a bubble of fiction. You know, we think that well, our memories are true, but they're not. And we live and we're like, we're, we have a wake of fiction behind us. All of our memories, our entire lives are fiction. We're editing our lives as we go. We, that's where the real power of fiction comes from, I think, and what we keys into some, some of it. I don't think it's, it's partially about dreams, but it's not. It's about how our brains are structured. It's about what we consider reality and what gives life meaning. So you can add another layer to that and talk about it. Well, what might happen ahead of time? But it's, that's a different thing entirely. Yeah. So. Yeah. You think some book, uh, if we come to this lady in the, the middle there, and um, was there somebody just behind you as well? You can just yell at It's a small room, right? It's for the recording. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, Jesus. Is this going to go on the internet? <laughs> I, think, I think it's actually already on the internet. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, well, there's more interesting things on the internet, I'm sure. So, <laughs> so I hear. Good <laughs> so, question. Sorry to keep you waiting. Um, it sounded like you grew up as a child with um, a lot of heroes. And I wondered um, who your heroes are now, if you still have any. Uh, heroes, you said? Yeah. yeah. Which heroes do you have now? Oh. Reminds me of the old uh, Pat Mills line in Martial Law. Right. You know, I'm a hero hunter. Yeah. I haven't found one yet. Um, you know, uh, writers and artists and stuff. I, you know, I'm not just saying this because he's sitting here, but Joe Sacco is a big hero to me. He's doing stuff that nobody else is doing, and not just in comics, but in writing and talking about things that uh, people have overlooked, trying to communicate feelings that people have not experienced themselves. That, and you know, when you think of news or journalism or something, it's almost it's almost packaged in a way that I don't mean to use that word that it's 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 dismissible or something. And what Joe writes about is the human, not just price, but the what goes into it, the feelings of what, what people have gone through. And, and it's, about, it's about reality. In a way, it's almost like news has become almost not about reality or something. So, I, you know, other cartoonists, you know, Robert Crumb and Art Spiegelman, um, great writers. So, I, you know, 
You're looking for names. That's I, I'm blank, you know, whenever anybody says, who are your favorite writers? And I, I feel like I should have a laminated card that I can read from because I blank out, you know. If I could stand in front of my bookshelf, I could read it off. Barack Obama, he's a pretty good guy still, I think. You know, he's trying. It's really like, you know, drone strikes and stuff are not looking good, but it's, it's you know, I think he's a really good person. I think, um, so... No, so I'm bit. not, and again, I'm disappointing people left and right. I can, I can sense the disappointment. Obama, cer cer certainly better than what we could have had. Yes, that's for but sure. Yeah, right. Now, was there a person just behind there? If we come to this person here. Awkward moment. <laughs> I, was, I was just interested by you talking about how you want to make everything look very artificial. Mm -hmm. um, I just wonder what medium this is maybe a naive question because no, maybe no, no. people know the answer to this. But I, want, I wondered what you know medium you work in originally, and what happens to that in the process to give it this almost, give it this distance in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, I I just I draw in a pen and ink on board uh, the same way that most cartoonists do. I use a brush with ink. I just pencil everything ahead of time, and. Uh, and for better or for us, maybe I'm just like crazy post-rationalizing, but I really think that that has something to do with the way we experience the world and the way we remember it. I think that we don't, we don't remember everything in intense detail. We condense things down, we distill things down, because again, we are creatures of language. We think in words and concepts. I mean, I, I think it's Nabokov said, which I think actually is not right and almost wrong. He said that Proust got it half wrong because we also think in images. I think Proust actually created images with his words on a page, which no other writer has yet been able to do to the degree that, mm. did I say Proust? I meant Joyce, sorry, um, that, that, um, that Joyce was able to do. At the same time, I, I, I think that there's something about like a, an abbreviated condensed image that it's sort of the way that we see the world. We, we abbreviate reality even as we are experiencing it. There are certain moments where you, reality kind of floods in, but for better or for worse, we don't really see much anymore as adults. We kind of, kind of just kind of bluntly go through life. As children, we're more apt to see much more of the world because the, uh, we haven't, language hasn't formed as much and started to reduce our, our since there it is again. There. So, since anyway, the drone strike, Obama's just heard Yeah, right, it. that's right. <laughs> Explode into flame. Like, terrifying. It's because we're in a tent, I guess. So, yeah. if you, just briefly while the microphone's going around, in terms of your own style and the, the kind of stylization, um, to what extent, I mean, part of that is the editing of reality, mm -hmm. but part of it is that it makes the characters every man. You know, they're not... I hope, yeah. I mean, you know, it's... <laughs> this is a literary festival. Don't they know what's going on? But... Yeah. Well, it's, I think uh, Art Spiegelman pointed out first, and then Scott McCloud elaborated in his book, uh, that uh, all you need to do is draw two dots. You don't even need a line underneath it, and anybody will see that as eyes. Like, one of the most terrifying things you can do is take two lights in the dark and just hold them there in front of somebody. It'll, you know, it's genuinely freaky. It's because we are wired to look into people's eyes to try to figure out, are they going to kill me or are they my friend? And it's like, that's what we're constantly doing. We're trying to read those things. And it comes down to a certain level of signifiers. And I think cartooning works from that um, particular mechanism or something. So. so we have the gentleman here. Hello, yes. Um, sorry, this is maybe um, unrelated to why you talked um, all through the session. But um, I, I was particularly 
interested in how you value the, uh, the cartoon. In the very beginning, you said you don't really compare it to the uh, serious novel. Uh -huh. You don't consider yourself a novelist. And, um, and you reminded me of um, Japanese comics. I'm from uh -huh. Japan, Japanese comics, oh, manga. Okay. Uh -huh. um, do you read uh, manga? Um, I, if you do, mm -hmm. if you do, uh, I would like to hear your opinions. Sure. I'm not as familiar with them as I should be. I think Keiji Nakazawa is one of the greatest cartoonists who ever lived, and I think Barefoot Jen is an absolute masterpiece that should be read by every single person alive. I don't know if, how many people are familiar with it. It's about his experiences fictionalized after surviving Hiroshima, and it's one of the most harrowing, horrible things I've ever read, and incredibly powerful. And um, I think he's so much better than, you know, Tezuka even. I, I know that might be sacrilege to say, uh, but I, uh, I, I, I think he's a, it's my ride. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, wow. Well, this is a city, right? So things happen here. But, um, and I'm familiar with um, some of the work that Drawn and Quarterly in the States has been reprinting. But I'm, I'm sort of becoming familiar with it at the same rate as most people are. I've tried to read some of it and try it, but it's, there's not a lot of stuff translated um, as, as much as I'd like there to be. So. But um, I, it, it's, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that um, Japan specifically has had a tradition of reading images for thousands of years longer than Western civilization has. The idea of using lines to demarcate form and seeing line drawings as beautiful images is a part of Japanese culture that simply is not. The drawings are very devalued in Western culture, which is interesting to me because I think they're much more, there's more to them to me than paintings in a lot of ways. But in Western art, the painting is the big thing. You know, sculpture is the big thing, not the drawing. Drawing is seen as a preparatory thing, but that drawing is where the thinking is, I think. So. I don't know. Is that answering your question at all? No. I think we have time to squeeze okay. in one more question. So if I'll go to that person here. If you didn't have a chance to speak to, to Chris here just now, we're going round to the signing tent next door to uh, sign copies of it. Do come and speak to him there as well. Um, so just this last point. Yeah. I hope you can hear me above all the aircraft and everything. Yeah, but, um, they're, they're closing in on us now. <laughs> it seems to be becoming more frequent. Um, I was really interested in what you were saying about uh, I suppose memories of characters and things, it's not linear, it's not A to B, it's like a horrible, messy map, basically. And certainly as a novelist, I'm guessing as a cartoonist as well, there has to be a point when you're interested in the character and you say, for all this information, for all the tangents and different uh, connections between characters, I have to stop at one point and commit all this to paper and I have to write a story out of it. And I'm just interested to find out at what point do you feel happy that you can begin like mapping somebody's because you can get so interested in somebody and just want to plan it, but at one point you have to commit and say, this is this person's life, and I'm going to have to start writing it out. And when do you, when do you feel like you're ready to do that? I think, well, Zadie Smith is, is basically broken writers into two camps. She has great words for them, neither of which I can remember, but basically one kind of writer is an architect who plans everything ahead of time, takes copious notes and makes an inventory and a dictionary and an encyclopedia of everything, where they live and where they go and all that. And then the other writer just starts writing. And she said she's one of those writers, and I'm one of those writers. And I, I start writing because I want to figure out what a character is like, and can I feel through that person or for that person in a way. And uh, I, it's kind of it's like living this weird double reality for the writers in the room, of which I assume there are many, many dozens, where you, you're, you're living your own life, but you're also living sort of a parallel life in a way. 
which is a little crazy too, but it, there's something about it that goes back to childhood and play, I think a little bit of trying to understand things or something and all these. So it's, uh, the writing itself is the thinking. It's, it's not planned ahead of time necessarily. It's thought through, but it's once I start working, all of that goes out the window. And uh, something about seeing something on the page is, is it something there's a rate to it that where I start to feel through the person more honestly or something that I wouldn't be able to if I was just sitting there trying to trying to understand or or so like Dungeons and Dragons or something they have a constitution of 12 and they're you know strong to well it just I couldn't do that so but. afraid we're out of time but as I say we are going round to the signing tent where Chris will be signing copies of our building stories thank you very I very cannot much. think of a better person to kick off the whole of the Stripped Festival, and I'm sure well, you're going could, to want to join me in thanking Chris Weir. Thank you. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.